Let's turn again to 2 Timothy, chapter 2, and verses 20 and 21. 2 Timothy 2, 20 and 21. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes, and some for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. How can we know what we're to believe when one bishop says one thing and another bishop contradicts him? This is uh, an objection you sometimes come across. And uh, maybe you're serious this morning, having that objection in, in your mind, that you're not simply using it as an excuse for not reading the Bible or not uh, listening when the Bible is being preached. There's enormous confusion in the professing church, in the Church of England, and in the free churches. If the Church of England believed in the 39 articles, which I tell you I, I do believe myself, except for some smaller points among them, they would be more united in speaking to England and telling England then what England should be believing about Jesus Christ and the Church in Wales similarly. And the passage before us then is uh, helpful in one angle that it gives us to that question that some of you might be troubled with. How can we know what we are to believe when one religious person says one thing and another religious person contradicts him? Jesus talks about a big house and the various utensils that you find in a big house. So we start there. What is this house and why is it so big? There have been great interest uh, in, all over the world. Friends in America talk to me about it, as well as people in Aberystwyth. It's about the TV drama called Downton Abbey. And it's portraits of uh, personalities and life in a mansion in England um, before the First World War, during the First World War, and then in the 1920s. And there's a great class divide in that house. And the storylines revolve around the lives of the servants who live downstairs and the lives of the family who own the house who live upstairs. It's a great country house, like Blenheim Palace or Sandringham or Versailles or the great castles on the Rhine. And there are many mansions then, like Downton Abbey, all over the United Kingdom. And so we know what Paul has in mind when he talks about this great house. What does it represent to him? Well, he is using um, the image of this building to stand for the Christian community in the very broadest sense. It's the only place in the New Testament where you get this analogy. And it's not helpful to build a doctrine of the church then just on one verse in Scripture. But the picture is helpful in this large house is the Roman Catholic Church with its liberal and conservative streams. 
It has a whole wing in this house. And then there's the Greek Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox uh, churches. They have smaller wings, and as do the Protestant denominations, the modernists, the evangelicals. All the Christian cults are represented there. The major cults that emerged in the 19th century in North America. They are large rooms in this house. And then there are the African cults, the legion of them that arose in the 20th century. And they've got smaller rooms. And then in this great house are all the parachurch organizations. Uh, the UCCF has got a room there. And missionary societies and seminaries and publishing houses like the Evangelical Press and the Banner of Truth and the Movement and evangelistic agencies and magazines that are Christian and websites and TV preachers. They all have little rooms and alcoves. Big, big house then. Nothing that claims to be Christian is left out. They're all there. That's why it's so large. So our uh, antagonistic tense Christian religious community is being compared to this mansion with all its furnishings. In this uh, large house, you'll find everything that claims to be Christian. You'll find heretics like Hymenaeus and Philetus that we've looked at, who deny the future resurrection. You will find the churches in Asia who have turned against the teaching of the Apostle Paul there in the house. You'll find the Galatian legalists who insisted that people not only had to trust in Jesus Christ, but they had to be circumcised as well. They are there. So this house then is the professing Christian community. It is Christendom. It's not a little house. I can tell you a parable. Here's a, a private uh, couple married for 50 years and they live in a tiny house, two up, two down. They have virtually no relatives. No one visits them. No one enters their house. The meter readers know that the meters are outside at the back of the house and they just copy down their figures from there. No tradesmen, no... Um, Postmen, no evangelizing members of the culture, ever invited in. And this husband and this wife, they see eye to eye on everything. And they go about their daily and their nightly routines like clockwork, with no variation, never talk to their neighbors, nod their heads, that's all. Never take a daily paper, never watch TV, read the newspapers. They don't have a phone or an email or a Twitter they go to the shops once a week, they pay their bills, and they keep themselves entirely to themselves. They're virtual hermits. That is a small house. We call it in Welsh a T-Bach Tut. And in no way can you say that that cottage is a picture of the church of Jesus Christ. No way. We are involved. We are encountering the people who live in the big house. We're there too. So what are some of the lessons we learn from this big house? Well, the context is very important where this occurs in the uh, second chapter of the second letter of Paul to Timothy. Paul has just been describing for us the church and he's 
done it in two ways. You remember this now, how the two ways he does it that contrast grace and law. Grace, the Lord knows those that are his. He loves his people. That's one way. They are people loved by God. And then secondly, uh, those who uh, confess Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior, they uh, turn away from wickedness. They name the name of the Lord, they turn away from wickedness. So you're a people divinely loved by God, and a people who show that they are divinely loved by turning away from every kind of evil and unclean action. Now that raises a problem, you see this problem that Timothy has. As he looks around him, he sees the churches and they're going astray. They are turning against apostolic teaching. And then here's Hymenaeus and Philita. And they're coming into his patch. They're coming into Ephesus and they're holding a campaign and inviting everyone to come and hear their doctrine that denies the resurrection. Why should God allow such wickedness, such heretics to be busy and disturb the peace then of the people that he loves? If he commands all people to depart from wickedness, why should he allow wickedness to emerge within the professing church itself? And now there are a number of answers to that question. But one answer is in this verse. All the people who make a profession, all the people who say, we're Christians, in the eyes of the world, they're in the church. They're in the big house. They've gone through the door. They're there. They've got a room in the big house. But there are tons of religious folk with tons of ideas of what Christianity is. And they're moving around. And sometimes they have a quarrel with people in, in one room and they, go, and they go next door. And they are happier with these people. But then they'll move on again. There's much confusion and discord in this big house. Some people have added to the gospel and others have removed basic teaching from the gospel. There's great confusion in this big house that's how it was when Paul wrote to Timothy, and that's how it is today. And that is how it will be until the Lord Jesus Christ returns and he makes the great separation in that day. There's going to be a great mixture of religious people living in the big house. A cross-section of the hearts of men, stony ground hearers, are going to be found there. Judas lived there for a while. And then there are others, and they produce love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control, and they live in that house too. The Lord knows who are his, and he loves them. And they have to depart from evil and wickedness and live a holy life. And so there are tensions within the house. And then there's another point that we have to make. 
You often hear it said that uh, the early church was expecting Jesus to come back any day, very soon. That there would be a rapture and that uh, Christians would be taken to heaven and that would happen then very, very quickly. Um, And they were confused, we are told. But here's a very different picture. Here's a picture of people professing to be Christians and they're in a large company with Hundreds of rooms and millions of people, and they're at loggerheads. Here's a huge skyscraper, different floors, have got different labels, religious labels on them. And people are turning against the Apostle Paul, and they are denying basic Christian truths. It's a confused picture. And men and women, that's how it is. And we're in for the long haul, and the hint of it here then is found in the verse before us, comparing then all religious folk as living in a big house. And then also this. The professing church then is presenting a messy picture to the world. We're not so surprised to find divisions and errors in this community that calls itself Christian, that Hymenaeus and Philetus have got their uh, descendants and they are busy and they are talking about the resurrection as conjuring tricks with bones as a certain bishop did some years ago. What period in the last 21 centuries has been a period without heresy, without error, without cults emerging and rising? Remember in a Uh, church history lecture we were doing the early church and uh, it was a sad story of how very soon the church departed from the truths of the gospels and the letters and somebody asked put his hand up and he asked the professor um, how could God have allowed the church so quickly so defiantly to move away from the gospel Well, of course, the answer was that the Bible also teaches your responsibility and my responsibility to hear and do what Jesus tells us to do. But we see from the Bible that the first child born to Adam and Eve was Cain, and Cain murdered his own brother. We learn of the house of Jacob and some of Jacob's sons behaved shabbily and in an evil way. We learn that of the people that came out from Egypt, there was Korah and Dathan and Abiram who challenged Jehovah. Jesus said, I have chosen 12 of you and one of you is a devil. Christ warned us about wolves dressed in sheep's clothing and Devils appearing as angels of light. So it's no surprise at all that in the first century, after the apostles had gone, there came in this diverse, newly spreading, big house, funny ideas, muddles and confusions. And that is how it's been. And you know this. You know what disturbing thoughts and questions, and cares, and doubts that can emerge. You know about fiery darts from the evil one. You know how enticing 
and in chanting the voices of your teachers are the articles you read in the papers and members of your family who seem so wise and smart and how it undermines your faith and how you are troubled with these cares. We're not ignorant of the devices of the devil, so we shouldn't be surprised if in the first century, in times of great blessing, when the Apostle Paul was still alive and Timothy was preaching his heart out in Ephesus, error came in. Error came in. And instead of there being one lovely, holy temple of God that was the church, there was this big house in the eyes of the world. The second thing I want to say to you this morning is that there are articles in this house. And some of them are cheap and some of them are costly. Verse 20, in a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also wood and clay, some are for noble purposes and some for ignoble well, now that, again, is a very um, familiar picture to you, isn't it? Uh, Windsor Castle. Windsor Castle has a, an occasional banquet for a visiting head of state. And the very best china and cutlery is taken out. And the most delicious courses are served. And there are fragrant vases of flowers. And the vases are Dalton vases or they are Chippendale, uh, Chippenham. Vases. But also, behind Windsor Castle are the staff apartments where the staff live and eat together, chauffeurs and maids and administrators. And uh, they then uh, eat with uh, plates that don't match and uh, knives and forks and dispensable instruments, mugs that don't match. In Paul's day, it was much the same. There were wooden and clay dishes for everyday use. And then, well, when the emperor visited a proconsul, the proconsul would uh, get his key and he would open the safe room. And there they would bring out then the gold plates and the gold and silver jugs and cruets. And they would have a banquet in his honor. Paul talks of things for a noble purpose and some ignoble purposes of others. In other words, things had uh, a menial use. There were brushes, and you would hear them, use them to brush your hair, and there would be then brushes that would brush the floor or would clean the lavatory. Some vessels would have perfume in them. Uh, other vessels would be chamber pots, And their use would determine their value. Well, the point of this metaphor, what is it then? Well, in this large house of Christendom, there are gold and silver teachers. And there are wood and clay teachers. And a faithful preacher-pastor is like a gold or silver vessel that brings honor to Jesus Christ, his ministry. And his life should reflect our Savior. He serves, he loves the Jesus of the Bible. He preaches about him, he brags about him. 
He exalts him. What a friend we have in Jesus, he says. He's our prophet. He's our priest. He's our king. And to that preacher, the Lord Jesus is all in all. He's the way and the truth and the life. He's the bright and morning star. He's the altogether lovely one, the rose of Sharon. He's the lily of the valley. He's the bread of life. He's the pearl of great price. He's everything and he wants everyone who hears him. He wants every one of them also to have Jesus Christ as their all in all. That they are satisfied with having Jesus Christ. That's their testimony. And so he sets out the gold utensils every Sunday to the congregation. The reverent, clear reading of Scripture. The great hymns that are sung. The effectual praying. The preaching of the Word of God. He's setting out gold and silver for them all to have. Every Sunday he does it. Um, There's a very kind and faithful minister in North America called Warren Weasby who's wrote a lot of helpful paperbacks on all the books of the Bible and he was the pastor in Moody Memorial Church for a number of years. And he tells of how he went to the Tower of London to see the crown jewels. You know, when you get into the room where the crown jewels are in the Tower of London, there's a conveyor belt that you stand on because everyone just wants to gaze and gaze at the at the crowns and the tiaras and the vessels and the ornaments that are there, hundreds of them in all their beauty, but you can't stay. And you're not allowed to, to keep walking and stand on the same spot. There are guards that make sure you have a slow movement down and you look and then the line keeps following you. Warren Weasby went in and he looked. He said, I was overwhelmed by their glory and beauty. He wanted to stand and gaze and gaze. But he couldn't. Some of the largest diamonds that have ever been discovered are there in the crowns that are displayed behind a bulletproof glass. You can't stay. You've got to move. You can look and look. Jesus spoke about a man, and he was an expert in jewelry, especially in pearls. And one day, a man offered him a pearl. It was very costly. He'd never seen a pearl like it, so large and lustrous and perfect. He must have it. He sold all his collection of jewels in order to have this one pearl of great price. That is Jesus to the longing heart. You let nothing stop you from having him. You must have him. You'll give up anything in order that you might have the Son of God as your Lord and Savior. When we hear heavenly anointed preaching that gives glory to Jesus Christ, then... We have the same experience. How often, when I listened to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones preaching, he came to the end after an hour, he would 
say something like, well, I must finish now, let me conclude. And there would invariably be someone in the congregation who would shout out, go on! Don't finish! I heard members of the congregation uh, calling those words out in many services when I heard him preach in, in Wales. Well, now that's the kind of beauty then that God has enabled his church today all over the world to display. They're telling people, do you know about this one? Look, he's, look at his, his life. Look at its perfection. Listen to his parables. Listen to the Sermon on the Mount. Have you ever heard anything as glorious? Look what he de- did. How he gave sight to a man born blind. How he cleansed the leper. These aren't fairy stories. He raised the dead. This Savior is alive today. He's with us today. He's willing to have you as, uh, as your Lord as your teacher, as your protector, as your king. This is what the church must do, Paul tells uh, Timothy. You be straight now. You, you tell them, straight, you rightly divide, that is, you cut a straight thorough, and you tell people, you go straight from the word to their hearts, and you tell them, go straight to Jesus Christ now, and ask him to help you to understand and believe these things. Now, from a wooden pulpit, great, glorious, gold and silver is presented to people. Hymenaeus and Philetus couldn't do that. When they said, oh, well, you know, you've got to understand it in, a, in a, a spiritual way. He was just using a picture when he talked about the resurrection of the body. He was talking about new life that we have. He was spreading that disbelief Wood and clay. That's all he was giving them. Wood and clay. Now, let me explain like this. There's nothing wrong with wooden boards for cutting up your food and cutting up the bread. Um, There's uh, nothing wrong with earthenware pots for cooking uh, your food in and putting them in the oven. uh, They're grand. As grand as... uh, Gold and, and silver and uh, fine glass, ah, they are, they are all so grand. But if something is not being used for what Paul twice calls here noble purposes, he says that phrase twice, you'll see, noble purposes. And if something isn't being used, uh, a utensil is not being used for a noble purpose. If, for example, a knife is being used to cut somebody, if a utensil is being used to hurt a person, to assault them, if a bottle is being used to damage someone, a glass is being pushed in somebody's face, it's a noble utensil being used for an ignoble purpose. So, there's a million pulpits then being used right now all over the world. The climactic aspect of worship 
is uh, when God speaks to us, we speak to God at the beginning of the service, we sing his praise and we pray to him, and then God speaks to us. And he speaks to us from a wooden pulpit, but we might be getting gold and pearls of great price and altogether lovely things we may be hearing. And the response is that we want to sing, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise. And that's the noble purpose of a wooden pulpit. And preaching from it, it produces praise to Jesus Christ. But when Hymenaeus and Philetus preached, there was no doxology. People were curious and intellectually proud, but they weren't lost in wonder, love, and praise. That was an ignoble use of the pulpit. Pots and brushes, wood and clay are fine things in themselves, but they are dishonored in the use to which they are put. Let me say something that the children will understand. There's that terrific series called Toy Story. And all the toys in Toy Story have a a noble purpose in view. Whether they are the great and the most famous toys, like Buzz Lightyear and Woody and Rex, or they are some of the lesser toys, like Mr. Potato Head and, and Jesse and Bullseye, they all have a noble purpose, and that is they want to give pleasure to children. They don't want to be thrown into a, a box or into a cupboard and forgotten for years. They want to be loved. They want to be used. They want to please their masters and mistresses. Children, you know more about Toy Story than your parents. I used then the characters in the film to explain to your mother and your father what's the noble use the good use of our lives and the, the best use of your life and your future, children, is to give pleasure to God. That's the, that's the best thing you can do with your life. To please the Lord Jesus who loved you and he died for you. And you, in return then, you give him yourself and you give him all your life and He smiles and smiles forever when he looks at you. And that's the best, best use of your life. That's the noble use of your life there. God is happy then with how we live and how we teach other people to live. And lastly then, how can we become noble and holy and useful to the Master? How can we live like that? And then he tells us in verse 21, if a man cleanses himself from the latter. He will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, prepared to do any good work. You went to church one winter morning and you sat there with the congregation and the preacher explained to you how you could be delivered from living a wasted life. But you could live a life of purpose, of noble purpose, of lasting, eternal purpose. That you could be made holy 
and useful to God, and that you would be ready and prepared for any good works that lie between this moment and the grave. So, let's look at these phrases here. Firstly, you've got to cleanse yourself from every ignoble purpose. You've got to become the very opposite. That's where it starts. It starts not with some uh, religious or philosophical or theological language, but it starts with clean up your life. That's what God says to us. He says to every unbeliever in Aberystwyth, clean up your life. Your life's messy. There's no purpose to your life. Clean it up. You know what is your chief purpose in life? Why has God made you? Why has he kept you until now? Well, man's chief purpose is to give glory to God and enjoy God in this world and in the world to come. And any other purpose is ignoble. There was once a woman and she heard that familiar answer to the shorter catechism and God used it and struck her with it and she was covered with shame. She'd never tried to live to the glory of God. Never. And soon, and sooner and sooner it comes to us, she's going to meet God and give an account to God. And she cried to him for mercy and he did give her mercy and he did help her and she changed and she became a really fine Christian person. There was a man who was convicted of murder in Ayr in the south of Scotland. And uh, during the uh, days waiting for his execution, God worked in his heart and changed him and gave him assurance of forgiveness. And on the gallows then, he was taken in a cart to the gallows and he was uh, taken off there and he stood and there was a huge crowd of people come to see his execution. He was a notorious criminal. And he cleared his throat and he said to the people, Oh, God is a great forgiver. He is a great forgiver. And he went into eternity. All his hopes were in the mercy of God through what Jesus Christ had done for him. The Lord Jesus can cleanse your heart, however defiled, however rotten you've been, whatever grief and guilt you've brought in for things that have happened to you, things that you have done in the past that you're ashamed of. It can all be forgiven. It can all be cleansed. If you go to him and confess your sin to him, you must cleanse yourself from every kind of ignoble purpose. That's the first thing. Secondly, you can be made holy. That's why Jesus died. He died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good. Paul tells the Ephesians, Christ loved the church, and he gave himself up for her to make her holy, to cleanse her by the washing with water through the word, That's why he died. That's why he went to the cross. That you might be changed and renewed and holy men and women. And that is what he achieves for everyone who entrusts himself to Christ. There were great words that were once spoken by a famous Christian named John Newton. 
And he spoke to them in a home. He was staying in the home and they asked him to lead the family devotions. And this is what he said. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be soon. But though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say, I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and to Satan, and I can heartily join with the Apostle when he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Those are words of a man who's been made holy by God's grace. Thirdly, you can live a useful life for the Master. That's what it says in the text. That's what Christianity is about. Not that we lie back and sing hymns and do nothing, but that we live useful lives. Well, how do you live a useful life? I will tell you. I will make some suggestions to you how to live a useful life. One, take a realistic view of your sin. Cheer up. You are far worse than you think you are. Every imagination of the thoughts of our hearts is only evil continually. And the only power that can deliver you is God's power through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then you are to do battle with remaining sin. You are to fight it until your deathbed. That is the challenge. Something good about a fight when we are assured of victory. Two, you can live a useful life by appreciating the deliverance and the forgiveness that comes through the Lamb of God. Whatever religious experiences you have, and I hope you have many that are true and good and pure, then, oh, the knowledge of God's grace. Grace is omnipotence acting to redeem us. And the knowledge of that grace comes through the redeeming love of Jesus Christ for us. And only by him can you live a useful life for the Master. Three, you sit under the best ministry of the word that you can hear. And you think about what you've heard. And you apply it to your situation every Sunday. You turn the truths into praise. Then you live a useful life for the Master. Four, by being conscious of how quickly this life goes away, and you're only a teenager for a few years. And those years, if they're not lived for Jesus Christ, are wasted years. You're only a young married couple for a few years. You only have children under your oversight for a few years, and then they are gone, and oh, you are to value how quickly our life goes by, and you are to use your life for the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. Five, you to be aware of how comprehensive and complete the Christian's life is in the world. And you can be convinced of this by reading. And you can find the fun and the delight of reading the Bible and reading books about the Bible. The best books of Christian faith. Books by Dr. Lloyd-Jones and Ian Murray and J.I. Packer and Donald MacLeod, and John Murray, and J.C. Ryle, and you may be discovering in these days you're spending far too much time on entertainment. 
and fleeting pleasures. Now, you are allowed entertainment, but there's a biblical proportion, isn't there? One-seventh, 15% of your life with those things. And then, oh, 85% in lasting, strong, delightful service of one another and of the living God. Then you live a useful life for Christ. Six, become an encourager. That's how you can live a useful life. Calling people back to the old paths and the paths of truth and wisdom. Um, And if that voice of yours increases in volume and confidence and winsomeness as the years go by, then, uh, oh, what a What a useful life for the master you will live. And then, simply, keep a day special every week. It's nice to give 20 minutes, half an hour to God and read the Bible in the mornings every day, but uh, he's worthy of a whole day. Every week, one day. It's not my day, it's the Lord's day, and I give it to the Lord, and I think about him, and I write letters to Christian friends, and uh, I... uh, I go to the services and uh, I do some evangelism. I I give a day to the Lord, to him. He's worthy of a day. God is worthy of a day every week. And then you learn, if you do that, to live a useful life for the master. And then, finally, you can be prepared for every good work. That's what he says here. Every good work for God. You're prepared. You're going along down to Jericho with your donkey and you go around a bend in the road and there's a beaten up man there who's been robbed and he's half dead. And you're prepared to stop and help him. You arrive at a meal and no one is concerned about washing your hands or doing anything. And, and, and you know you get the, the basin and the water and, and you're prepared to do that good work. Uh, the most wonderful preacher that the world has ever heard or ever seen comes to your house and you forget about um, your favorite meal and that you're going to cook for the people afterwards and you want to enhance your reputation as a cook. You go and sit as close to him as you can and sit at his feet and you listen to everything he has to say. Your boss's wife tries to seduce you. And you know what to do. You run a mile from her. God asks a very great sacrifice from you. And you say, well, he's able to raise the dead. I will do what he tells me. You come ashore from a shipwreck on a beach with lots of other women and children. And, and everyone is... Uh, is cold and wet and you are but you think of them and you gather some wood together and you make a fire to save them from hypothermia God enables you to do every good work there are two women in the congregation and they're at loggerheads and you can address them publicly you exhort them to be of the same mind in the Lord and you remind them of Jesus Christ that he had rank and he had authority But he laid it all aside and he gave himself and he died.
to teach us how we are to live and we are to think of other people better than ourselves and we are to get on with other people. You can be made ready, you can be prepared for every good work. That's what grace does. That's what salvation in Jesus Christ does. Let us pray. Lord, we ask thee to help us then to be vessels that are meet for the Master's use, that we can be usable in your hands, that you'll deliver us from every ignoble purpose, that you'll help us to clean ourselves up and uh, to serve thee and to be ready then when strange circumstances and providences occur and we are being challenged to say some words and to do some actions that are pleasing to thee. Help us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus Christ day by day. We ask it in his name. Amen.